welcome to Folkways, an auditory stroll through the rich and fascinating folklore of Britain and Ireland. The beliefs and culture of people who made this cluster of northerly islands their home. From music to psychogeography, to what to do if you notice the devil following you to church. It's a long, strange trip, and there are no guarantees you'll be home in time for dinner. Welcome to our second episode on Midsummer. Burn, baby, burn. This time, let's dive into some of the customs concerning the longest day of the year. From fireside frolics to placing a stocking full of wax under your pillow. So come in from the fields and cease your labour. It's time to get those bonfires blazing again. Enjoy. Our first up is Ireland, where there is a wealth of accounts of midsummer practices, often from travellers passing through, who were particularly struck by the fire ceremonies they encountered, and therefore made sure to record their accounts. The Shropshire-born geographer and archaeologist E. Eston Evans writes in Irish Folkways that on the high hills of Ireland, for a long time, the midsummer fire still burnt strongly in country districts. In 1956, he writes, I saw dozens of them in County Galway on Midsummer's Eve, mostly at country crossroads. Old men in Donegal have told me they remember the time when they had counted from their hilltop fire nearly a hundred others. Whatever you think of the conclusions James Fraser comes to in The Golden Bough, his compiling of folk rites and practices is still certainly noteworthy. In Boulder the Beautiful, the fire festivals of Europe, he includes the following accounts. On Midsummer's Eve, every eminence near which there is habitation blazes with bonfires, and round these they carry numerous torches, shouting and dancing, which affords a beautiful sight. A pleasing prospect to a distant beholder, and a stranger would go near to think the whole country was on fire. They make bonfires and run along the streets and fields with wisps of straw blazing on long poles to purify the air, thinking all the devils, spirits, ghosts and hobgoblins fly abroad this night. A writer from London's The Gentleman's Magazine, one of the first general interest periodicals, was staying with Irish friends during midsummer of 1782 and gives this evocative description. It was to me that we should see at midnight, the most singular sight in Ireland, which was the lighting of fires in honour of the sun. Accordingly, exact at midnight, the fires began to appear, and taking advantage of a widely extended view, I saw on a radius of 30 miles, all around, the fires burning on every eminence which the country afforded. In 1867, the Liverpool Mercury just couldn't get enough and ran this feature. The old pagan fire worship still survives in Ireland, though nominally in honour of St John. On Sunday night, bonfires were observed throughout nearly every county of Leinster. In Kilkenny, fires blazed on nearly every hillside at intervals of about a mile. There were very many in Queen's County, also in Kildare and Wexford. The effect in the rich sunset appeared to travellers very grand. An eyewitness has described as follows a remarkable ceremony. After the fire, everyone present passed through the remains and children were thrown across the sparkling embers, while a wooden frame of some eight feet long with a horse's head fixed to one end and a large white sheet thrown over it. This was greeted with loud shouts of the white horse, the white horse. as it too left through the embers 
before pursuing the people, who ran screaming and laughing in all directions. I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like loads of fun. Whilst the tradition of lighting bonfires on St John's Eve has declined substantially over the past century, the tradition is still observed in certain, mainly rural parts of the country today. It's a mixed bag though, an example being the response to a 2015 article in the Irish Journal entitled Why Will Lots of Bonfires Be Lit Across the Country Tonight? We see many commenters had never heard of the practice. Some said they'd only become aware of it through visiting other countries, Spain and Portugal in particular, where they reported large celebrations. Many commenters, however, said they had heard of the practice of lighting fires on St John's Eve and offered the following. It's still around up here in Donegal. A wee tradition is to wrap spuds up in tinfoil, put them in a biscuit tin and put them straight in the fire. When they come out later, the skin is black, but once you peel that off to inside the spud, Japers, get the butter out. Known as Bonna Night in Cork, but it is slowly dying out. We have always celebrated in Galway. I'm planning on having a bonfire tonight. A great tradition. Some of my fondest memories from growing up in Mayo are of bonfire night. I remember the whole community used to come together. Never heard of it until I moved to Galway for a while in the early 90s. Standing on a hill outside Athenroy, was impressed to see loads of bonfires flickering away in the distance. A relative would always insist on bringing out a small bucket of turf and set fire to it outside his house to mark the night. Come tomorrow, there'll be nothing but scorched grass, burnt wood and the springs of all those old mattresses. The rest of these islands follow similar themes, namely that large fire that people would jump over for protection and luck, torch-lit processions and the blessing of houses, fields and livestock. In Wales, fires were lit from either three or nine different types of wood and various herbs were thrown into the blaze before young couples would leap over the flames. In the Vale of Glamorgan, a cartwheel wrapped in straw used to be ignited and rolled down a hill. If it kept alight all the way down and blazed for some time, an abundant harvest was expected. In the Isle of Man, fires were lit on the windward side of each cornfield, so the smoke would pass directly over the corn, and blazing torches were carried over the fields. Orkney is one of the places that clung to the old traditions the longest, with celebrations a common practice until the mid-19th century. Here, the peats for the fire were provided by those whose horses had suffered disease or been gelded during the year, with the livestock then being led sunwise around the flames. Blazing heather was carried among the cattle to help ensure procreation. And in the preceding century, people were also in the habit of circling their houses and fields with torches. And at one point, no self-respecting English village would be without its midsummer fire, including sometimes a torch-lit procession of Morris men and pageants. In Herefordshire and Somerset, fires used to be made in the fields to bless the apples. In Devon, the custom of leaping over the midsummer fire was, as in other parts, observed here too. 
bonfires of Midsummer's Eve prevailed all over Cumberland down to the second half of the 18th century. In Northumberland, the fires were lit in the villages and on the tops of the high hills, where people danced around them. Moreover, the villagers used to run with burning brands around their fires and to steal ashes from a neighbour's fire, saying as they did so, we now have the flower of the wake. We're told that on Midsummer's Eve, it was the custom of the inhabitants, young and old, of Northumberland village Walton in the Blythe Valley to collect a large cartload of combustible materials, which were dragged with great rejoicing, a fiddler being seated on the top of the cart, into the village and made into a pile. The people from the surrounding country assembled towards evening, when it was set on fire. Whilst the young danced around it, the elders looked on, smoking their pipes and drinking their beer, until it was consumed. As we've seen, Whilst the fires in Ireland lingered on for some time, and in some places still do, in England their disappearance during the 19th century was rapid and ubiquitous. Interestingly, however, Walton, as described above, is still at it. Yup, even today. The village website writes that the Baal fire, as it's called, is a true living relic. As summer fires have come and gone, and in some instances come again, Walton has continued uninterrupted. No longer do farmers look anxiously into the fire for signs of plenty, nor do couples jump through the fire to secure a fruitful union. So why does it happen? Is there some folk memory at work? Or is this a small show of rural pride and of village identity? They continue that the ancient Baal fire shines a light on the character of a tiny community surviving in the 21st century. And then there's Cornwall. Today, in what appears to be a revival of the old custom, fires are still lit the length and breadth of the county, starting at Carnbray near Land's End as the first fire in a large chain, then extending through Senan, Sancred Beacon, Carngalva and St Agnes Beacon to the Tamar River. A local person of the clergy blesses the fire in Cornish, so be sure to brush up before herbs and flowers are cast into the flames. If this sounds like your jam, visit oldcornwall.net for more information before travelling. Those folks at calendarcustoms.com note in 2017 they visited the Liscard part of the chain where at 6.30 the fire was lit at Bolotho Farm and were made very welcome, they add, later being treated to saffron buns and tea. We better get planning our trip for next year. Despite individual expression, there can be little doubt that these customs date from a very remote antiquity indeed. We can think of the many similarities between the celebrations we briefly looked at here. Not to mention on this date, past and present, those all throughout Europe. And think back, perhaps you've partaken in some modern summer sun worship yourself.
Now, because this time of year is all about blossoming verdant life, it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to understand its symbolism. The month of June, named after Juno, the Roman goddess of marriage, has traditionally been the preferred month for weddings and is still one of the most popular today. If you know much about traditional fire festivals, then you might think that the Gaelic festival on May the 1st, Beltane, is surely the horniest of celebrations though. This date, also known as Sesawain, or First of Summer, certainly celebrates nature and sexuality. Perhaps one way to think about it is if the two festivals were people, then May the 1st would be a younger adult coming into their sexual power, whilst the midsummer person would be at the height of it, knowledgeable of the dance and in control. Whilst Beltane's power will still be continuing to grow for some time, the midsummer person will soon be looking at the autumn of their days and a retraction of types. So, whilst both festivals share many of the same themes, it's the emphasis on each which can be seen as different. Further analogies might be a first date versus your wedding day, or foreplay versus climax. Feel free to come up with some of your own. A focus of folk rites during midsummer is certainly on the theme of shacking up, but often for something longer term rather than a tumble in a hay barn. Girls and young women would traditionally use this time of year to try to divine their future partners. There is an absolute plethora of really charming customs concerning this. Starting things off with, well, quite a bizarre charm, is that a woman should walk around a church three times at midnight saying, Hemp seed I sow, hemp seed I hoe, hoping that my true love come after me and mow. <laughs> Let's hope nobody sees or hears you doing that. After she's walked around the church three times in the pitch black, she should look over her shoulder and see a vision of her lover following her with a scythe. And whilst we can appreciate the continuing farming metaphor there, if you look over your shoulder at midnight and see a bloke following you with a scythe, it's time to just run. Now for something slightly less dangerous. A really common midsummer theme is one concerning prophetic dreams, where on Midsummer Eve you're instructed to place various plants or charms under your pillow so you have visions of your future beau. A regular player in midsummer dreaming is mugwort, a plant which has a long association with visions and dreams. If you want to dream of an absent lover, let's hope they're not just ghosting you, then it's daisy roots instead. Others include ash, sage or laurel leaves, the fabled four-leaf clover or marigold petals. The latter, which has the added benefit of helping you to identify a thief, could be helpful. For those of you feeling a little more ambitious, there's this fascinating though fiddly wax charm. Take a stocking and wrap a piece of wax in it, then place that small parcel under your pillow. Next morning, melt that piece of wax down. When liquid, pour it into a glass of water and leave it in the midsummer sun. The wax will harden into a shape that shows the occupation of your future partner. I guess useful to know where in town to begin looking. 
Another slightly more prickly one from Northern England is that of taking three holly leaves and naming each one of them after people you might have your eye on. They're then marked and placed under your pillow with the left hand. The first leaf to have turned over in the morning is the person whose number you should ask for. Just forget the other two. A slightly darker one from Old English law involves gathering yarrow from a young man's grave and again laying it under the pillow on Midsummer's Eve to produce visions of your partner-to-be. The idea appearing to be going to the place of the dead to help with problems very much of the living, which though that might sound a little creepy today, is actually a common theme in folk rites across the world. Moving out of the bedroom and into the garden, find a patch of grass where daisies grow and just pull up a handful. The number of daisies in the handful is the number of uncoupled years remaining to you, yikes. Daisies are associated with love and are sacred to Venus and Freya. It is said daisies picked between noon and 1pm on Midsummer's Day have particularly magical qualities. Their folk name means measure of love and actually comes from the playground game many of us will already know. Pulling off the petals of a daisy one by one saying they love me, they love me not. The final petal of course will give you your answer. Fingers crossed. How about trying this one from Herefordshire? where there's a custom of putting a plate of flour under a rosemary bush on Midsummer's Eve. The next morning you come out and the initials of your future lover will have appeared in the flower. And how about this for some relationship divination? In 17th century England, girls pick two sprigs of orpin, the folk name of which is interestingly Midsummer Men. They then hung them up in pairs from the ceiling, divining the future of their relationship by whether or not the plants inclined towards each other or apart. I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips and the nodding violet grows quite over-canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses and with eglantine. There sleeps Titania, some time of the night, lulled in these flowers with dances and delight. As you might recognise, that was Act 2, Scene 1 of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is selected for its biophilic connotations. So here's a question. What do demonic fairy horses have to do with the longest day of the year? We'll listen on further as we delve hooves deep into some of the fascinating plant folklore of this time of year. In Wales, this date was known as Gulavan, literally John's Festival. This was one of the three Espiridnods of the year, or spirit nights, where contemplations of the other side were heightened. The other two Espiridnods were 31st of October and 30th of April, Halloween or Samhain and Beltane Eve. Primarily, although not exclusively, in Glamorgan, the erecting of the summer birch was observed, where the trunk of a birch was specially decorated and used in a similar way as the maypole. It was adorned with colourful pictures and the young women decorated it with golden wreaths covered with ribbons. On top was a weathercock with golden feathers and ribbons on its tail, and underneath was a floating banner. Much dancing and general carrying on took place around the birch. It wasn't all riotous fun though. 
there was a tradition of the theft of the birch by which villagers from a neighbouring parish would try to steal a pole so strong guards were required. If the birch pole was stolen, it was no laughing matter, as it was seen as a huge disgrace. No birch could be raised again until another had been stolen to replace this one, whoever nicked the first setting off a chain of chaos. Gulavan was also called Gathering Day in Wales, as people would gather the herbs such as St John's Wort that they needed for use throughout the year. The herbs gathered at this time were considered especially potent as they'd been soaking up a midsummer sun at the height of its game. Medieval gatherers picked fennel, rue, rosemary, lemon verbena, mallow, foxglove, elderflower, bracken and yarrow in particular, which were used in various folk remedies. Great agricultural fairs were also held, whilst roses and wreaths were hung over doors. Its observance finally died out in south-east Wales by the end of the 19th century. However, since 1977, a traditional folk dance revival has been held in Cardiff and is now held annually on this feast date. The company hold a grand procession through Cardiff. They raise the summer birch pole, which we've just looked at, outside City Hall and dance around Cardiff and Cardiff Bay. People from all over Wales and wider Europe come to the festival to dance under the hopeful midsummer sun. And do you know what the festival called themselves? Gulavan. Go on, lads. And there's rather an unexpected midsummer tradition surrounding the church of Newton North, Pembrokeshire, which dates back to the 12th century. Within the contract of ownership of the now ruin, there is an ancient clause which dictates that if requested to do so, the owner of the land must present the Church of Wales with a white rose to mark Midsummer's Day. The current owners of the land, the Bluestone Resort, write that though nobody's ever come out and directly asked for one, they choose to mark the occasion by presenting one white rose to the old church every year. There's something about that just makes me want to cry. A separate note is that there's a spring situated next to the church which documents describe as a holy well, suggesting a long history of this area as a spiritual site. This, coupled with the rose custom, might make the location a nice place for a midsummer stroll in your future plans. During this time of year, English churches were decorated with birch and fennel. The festivities extended to to draping local signposts with birch and, as historian John Stowe somewhat famously recorded in 1598, that in London, each door was hung with birch, fennel, St John's Wort, Orpin and white lilies. He also notes seeing glass lamps with oil burning throughout the night, sometimes many altogether, which he records made a splendid appearance. So, succinctly put, one celebrates an abundant natural world by draping your home, hearth, and perhaps even head with flowers and greenery, like a summery Christmas. And whilst all plant life in general can be seen as symbolic of the sun's power at this time of year, some are especially associated with midsummer. The kingpin of all midsummer plants is undoubtedly the perennial herb St John's Wort. Sharing its name with the Christianised festival itself, it was traditionally harvested on this date. 
In fascinating plant folklore, it is associated with protection and was commonly hung over doors, windows and religious icons to keep all form of ne'er-do-gooders away. Even its botanical name Hypericum means to protect from spirits, derived from the Greek words hyper meaning over and aikon apparition. It was also called Fugidaemonum meaning devil's flight because its scent was so abhorrent to old Nick he'd have to immediately flee. Another folk name is Scare Devil, titles giving a reminder of this plant's occult past. It was said Satan himself would lose all his powers when confronted with it, so always good to keep some in your back pocket. It was also one of those herbs thrown into the midsummer bonfires we've previously discussed, believing the burning of it would frighten any supernatural beings away. A poem from the year 1400 recommends rubbing the flower on the lintels of your home to protect from thunder and tempest. It has been known as the golden herb which shines like the sun in the darkness on St John's Eve. For early Christians, the plant's yellow stamens and bright golden flowers suggested sunlight. It makes sense that this cheerful coloured flower of June has become tied to the sun and as an illuminator of all forms of darkness. To the medieval mind, a closer examination of the plant revealed even more. Because its petals ooze crimson resin when rubbed, very satisfying, the herb is said to have sprung from the earth where St John the Baptist was beheaded. The red spots on its leaves, said to become visible on the 29th of August, the reputed death of St John, represent the blood spilled and the dots or perforations around the edges of the leaves were believed to have been caused by the devil himself when he attempted to destroy the plant once and for all by piercing it with a needle. But St John's wort has also been favoured for its large array of medicinal properties. It has been used in the treatment of nervous exhaustion, sword cuts to stomach complaints. It could be left overnight in a container of water, exposed to the night's dew, and in the morning, people washed their faces in the resulting flower water. Of course, flower water is a big hit today for beautifying purposes, with companies charging quite a lot of money for such a simple product. So, it's dusk on Midsummer's Eve, and you're all prepared to go harvest some St John's Ward. There are a couple of problems. Firstly, legend has it that the plant moves around and hides from those who seek it for its many uses at midsummer. Secondly, you had to pick it whilst being very careful not to tread on the plant in the gloom. To do so meant a fairy horse would rise up out of the ground and you'd be carried away on a wild and terrifying journey that might last until the first light of dawn. No pressure then. However, if you're familiar with St John's wort today, chances are this might be due to its wide use as a highly effective antidepressant. It's interesting that, although we can see humanity's evolving relationship with this plant, from demon fairy horses to something you can potentially get from your chemist, its value to people has remained high. I'll end this segment with a Scots garlic poem on the herb. St John's wort, St John's wort, I envy whoever has thee. I will pluck thee with my right hand. I will preserve thee with my left hand. Whoso findeth thee in the cattle field will never want for anything. 
So for our final section on Midsummer, I'm going to open this up for a bit of a brief free-for-all of customs and law. Um, some of these make a lot of sense. Some of these don't make any sense, and you might have some of your own. Let's first start off with a warning. Whatever you do, be sure not to go anywhere near Chanctonbury Ring at midnight on Midsummer's Eve. And if you do, don't accidentally run seven times backwards around it, for you will conjure up Beezlebub himself. But perhaps you're thinking more about dating than you are the devil. Here's a Midsummer love charm. Put a variety of Midsummer flowers into a tankard of ale. This tankard should be shared by two people who have their eyes on each other. It's a bit of a whirlwind romance since they will be married within the year. Cheers. And that's obviously a bit of a theme as demonstrated in another. A lady should pick St. John's Wort on Midsummer's morning with importantly, this is underlined, the dew still fresh upon it. And again, she will marry within a year. Make sure you're growing thyme in your herb garden. Add it to food to bring back fun into the life of anyone who eats it. Also, use it as one of the herbs thrown into the midsummer bonfire to attract good health. And lastly, if you are on the pole, wear a sprig of it in your hair to become completely irresistible. Not to mention smelling quite lovely. Yarrow has traditionally been associated with, amongst other things, lovers' fidelity. To keep the flames of love burning in relationships, on Midsummer morning, cut nine heads of yarrow, saying as you do so, I cut to you yarrow that love may grow. Take the yarrow home and wrap the stems together with green ribbon. Hang the charm above the bed that you share with your partner to ensure lasting love, even during quarantine. And here's a bit of a bizarre one from Suffolk. Again, chant the following over a piece of yarrow. Green yarrow, green yarrow, you bear a white blow. If my love do love me, my nose will bleed now. If my love don't love me, it on't bleed a drop. If my love do love me, till bleed every drop. Okay. So Yarrow got the folk name Nosebleed as well as Sneezewort and Sneezings and depending on which source you go to this is because it either causes the nose to bleed or it stops the bleeding, conversely, when the plant is placed inside the nostril. Why this was being tested to begin with, it just isn't clear. On Midsummer's Eve, a group of skeletons are said to emerge from and dance around an old oak tree at Broadwater Green in Sussex until dawn. This next one falls into the divination aspect of Midsummer's Eve that we looked at earlier. The instruction goes that at midnight you should select an empty room in your home and on the floor place various articles, such as they suggest a ring, a basin of water, etc., and you need to get a mate in for this one, as you're then led into the room blindfolded, and the first article you touch will reveal your fate. For instance, if the ring, you'll be married, and somewhat ominously goes the instruction, if the water, you will be drowned. And that's from Bygone Days in Devonshire and Cornwall, by Mrs Henry Pennell Whip.
The midsummer moon was and still is known as the honeymoon, and honey is used in wedding ceremonies in June. And think of the term honeymoon, the holiday newlyweds take after getting hitched. Despite a myriad of different theories, a popular one is due to the newlyweds being gifted a moon's worth, so a month's worth, of honey wine, sweet mead, or in some cases, honey itself as a wedding present. Roses gathered on midsummer are said to remain fresh until Christmas. This is quite a far-reaching folk belief, actually, and various charms are based upon it. This West Country rose charm suggests picking a rose on midsummer morning and putting it away wrapped in a piece of white paper where it's meant not to fade. Do not touch it until Christmas time, where you should then take it out and wear it on your person in some way. Your destined future lover will reveal themselves by taking it from you. Whilst you might associate cutting trees and decorating them with ribbons and flowers, more of a May Day custom, throughout the British Isles this was also seen during midsummer. At Launceston in Cornwall, a decorated pole was placed on a prehistoric mound with a bonfire. Right up until the 19th century, wrestlers competed there to become the Summer King. And finally, talking of battles of kings, the cycle of the solstices, or summer giving way to winter and then reverse, can't really be discussed without mentioning two foliate gentlemen, the Oak King and the Holly King, popular personifications of summer and winter in the pagan mind. A complete side note here that they were given a brief outing in Annabella's ravishing 2016 comedy horror, The Love Witch. So at Midsummer, the Oak King is rich in abundance and reigning supreme. However, after a quick scuffle, he surrenders his reign to his brother, the Holly King. I quite enjoy this imagery as, rather than feeling depressed that summer is now over, the personified winter, you know, is a sprightly chap who's got his own thing going on too, leading to a consideration of the other side of the seasonal coin. Robert Graves astutely identifies other legends and archetypes of paired hero figures as variants on the Holly King, Oak King myth, including Gwyn and Gwythir, Lou and Baylor, Gawain and the Green Knight, a wonderful one, and of course, if you think about it, Jesus and John the Baptist. So if you're feeling inspired and you would like to mark Midsummer in some way yourself, you could take inspiration from some of the historical accounts, some of which have been compiled on this show. But succinctly put, we want to include the element of fire and the celebration of the natural world in some way. For fire, this can range from a bonfire in your garden, a fire with friends on the beach, or simply lighting a candle at home. Greenery can be brought inside the house in some way, so plants can be woven into a type of crown, a great activity for the children in your life, or a handful of midsummer flowers can be thrown into a bath for a rejuvenating summer soak, or simply a bunch of wildflowers can be placed into a vase next to that lighted candle we just mentioned for a beautiful and subtle display. I've done exactly that, and it is an inspiration and a simple reminder of what this time of year is all about. It's also about 
divination, mainly that of the romantic kind as we've previously looked at. On Midsummer's Eve, you could try your own take on one of the pillow divinations I mentioned, or hone your skills at your chosen divinatory practice. Take the time to create the right atmosphere, get the right lighting, or open your curtains and look up at the sky and see what midsummer wisdom befalls you. But honestly, one of the best ways to appreciate the sun and the natural world is just to take a midsummer's walk. Carve a bit of time for yourself away from your normal routine and go off on your own summer quest, taking time to enjoy the splendour of the season at its peak bliss. Happy Midsummer! Thanks for listening to our second episode on Midsummer and our second episode ever! If you have some Midsummer gems of your own, I would absolutely love to hear from you. And you can contact me on social media at Folkways Channel or email the show folkwayschannel at gmail.com. In our next episode, we're sitting down with Rob Jones from the incredible Black Dog scene to chat about East Anglian folklore. I cannot wait. Catch you soon. Chippers, get the butter out.